When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome back to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan and I'm pleased you can join us for what is going to be a fascinating episode. Uh, When I set up the idea of doing Humans of Speedway, as well as speaking to the big stars on the track and big names that you will know from Speedway already and getting to know their story, I also wanted to keep it open to be able to speak to some of the lesser known names perhaps, people's voices or faces that you see around tracks but you don't really know uh, too much about their background perhaps and my next episode is uh, all about one of those people who've dedicated their entire life to the sport in a few different ways he is roy clark now roy as a youngster had dreams of being a speedway rider and as we'll discuss in a bit more detail there were mental health issues that really prevented him from kicking on to a career on the track uh, but uh, he was also involved in being a mechanic helping out in the pits as a spanner man for many of Newcastle's stars over the last uh, 20 years or so. And more recently, he's turned his attention to entertaining on the centre green, behind the mic of clubs like Redcar, Newcastle, Berwick and some of the big uh, Speedway GB meetings as well over the last few years. So certainly a voice you'll know and you might recognise his face from the terraces as well. But he's got a fascinating story, a lifetime in Speedway and it's my pleasure to welcome to Humans of Speedway, Mr Roy Clark. Yeah, good evening, good evening, whatever what time you're listening to this. But uh, yeah, for the first time in a long long time, I'm a little bit nervous, Ian. Are you? Why? I don't know. It's it's probably because it's the first podcast I've ever done. Um, it's probably ideal for me because I've got the perfect face for radio, so... Um, I think it's the best way to go. So I'm looking forward to it. Well, you know, you're no stranger to a microphone, and we'll we'll, we'll talk more about your uh, centre green exploits because people will will know your voice even if they don't know your face. They'll they'll probably have heard your voice if they've been to uh, one of one of many tracks um, around the country. But but first of all, let's start with you. And how did you find your way into Speedway uh, initially? Because you've a brief potted history. You, you know, you, you've had a go at being a rider. You've You've uh, been a mechanic for various riders. You've um, been a centre green announcer. You've done some team management. You've kind of done it all. But what was your first way in? Yeah, um, first way in was in a carry cut. My mum and dad used to go to Newcastle every week. And uh, I was born on the 10th of June. And probably the first meeting after that, I would be on the third and fourth turn at Newcastle, up in the old woodsheds there with my mama, with my mum and dad. Wow, and and this would be the is this the, the same Bruff Park track as now, or, or a different one? Um, same place, uh, vastly different now to what it was then. Uh, it was a a very good stadium back in the sixties and in in the seventies. There was a big massive stand on the back straight where people could stand and also sit behind glass, which was a lot closer to the track than what the one was in the main straight. Um, there was a grass bank on the second turn; people could stand on. Around the third and fourth turn, there was a big, massive tote board on the third turn, but there was terracing in front of that. Um, I can simply remember a little snack bar also in the in the tote bar there. But then there was two large covered uh, wooden stands around what would be the fourth turn, which is now sort of like 
uh, an empty area where they parked cars. But mm. uh, it was an excellent stadium back then. Unfortunately, like a lot of stadiums, it's sort of like uh, gone to the wall a little bit. Yeah, they often do seem to fade away, and and I think obviously not far from from Newcastle, of course, um, you you would have had Sunderland as well back in the day, and that's still there as a dog track, but uh, no longer a speedway track, but kind of a similar facility, I suppose, around that time. Yeah, yeah. The only thing that's changed with Sunderland is there uh, the dog track is slightly moved out now. Um, there used to be a a, sta- a a covered area on the back straight at Sunderland where people used to stand. Um, I can probably remember more meetings at Sunderland than what I can at Newcastle from the early days. Um, you know, my mum and dad used to go there all the time, even went to away matches. I can remember as a as a tot going to uh, Weymouth to watch Weymouth versus Sunderland. And it was at the old Raggypool Lane track, but um, the grass was that tall on, on the centre green. All, you, all I could see was the heads going down the back straight. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it must have been a fascinating um, scene then, with 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 so much uh, speedway in not just in the northeast, but in the in the north as a whole. That you know, away trips didn't have to be uh, overly that far sometimes, did they? No, it's uh, one thing we used to do every bank holiday. If my mum and dad didn't go, I would go down with my uncle Michael, who uh, still very much in my life at the moment. Um, who became my mechanic when I rode, but we used to go down to Halifax the Shea every bank holiday weekend to watch the Halifax Dukes against the Bellevue Aces. You know, what a fantastic meeting they were. You know, the Halifax track the Shea was a brilliant track to watch Speedway at. Yeah, and that, that's where I um, you know, sort of uh, was introduced a very similar fashion to you, I think, uh, sort of uh, in the early days. In fact, my first meeting I attended was the 1977 U Levy uh, World Final in in Sweden, and uh, that was before I was born. Uh, so <laughs> I don't remember much, but yeah, yeah. Uh, well, apparently, I think it was raining and quite wet, so I probably had as good a view as some of the riders. Yeah. Oh, it's, uh, that's that's what I mean uh, with me. Is I was forty before I actually got on an aeroplane, and so I've never been abroad very much for speedway. I did go to Ivan's last World Final uh, at. Katowice winning six world world championship uh, on the Warner Sports train. Um, that was a a very eventful trip to say the least. And, and why was it eventful? Well, um, it was two sets of trains that were sort of like we got the the train down to the ferry, ferry over to the continent, and then a train to Poland. Um, our our train for some reason ran out of alcohol. <laughs> and, and the other train that went, the uh, buffet car went on fire. So they, they had no food at all for the, on the train. But it was great times because you had uh, supporters from every single track you could think of. Um, we ended up sharing a, um, one of the carts with the whole Vikings fans. So obviously us from Newcastle, uh, the whole fans got on really well. And going to um, Poland around then must have been a different uh, prospect to, to now because obviously it would have still been behind the Iron Curtain then, wouldn't it? Yes, it was very much so. Um, all the, I can remember, you know, all the buildings, very grey-looking buildings, but they would all be daubed with uh, big banners and red and white, obviously, propaganda and things like this. Um, we took a lot of old Speedway stars and uh, T-shirts and jeans and things like this and... Uh, 
we were selling them out there. We had a little business going, me and my uh, my friend Fred Mitchell, um, and it got a bit lively at one point. And I think we panicked and sort of like ran off, <laughs> left everything behind. <laughs> Better safe than sorry. Uh, now, Roy, you did what so many young boys uh, dream of doing when they've been and watched Speedway for so many years through their childhood, that you uh, wanted to become a rider and you actually did something about it. And um, you did become a rider eventually, but how did you get started on that journey of uh, getting on a bike and, and, and taking Speedway seriously from that point of view? When I was uh, about 13 or 14, I started doing sort of like our version of Cycle Speedway. A group of friends of ours um, had a track in a field that my dad owned uh, called Tinker's Turn up at Benton, if anybody knows that. And um, we had this grass track, but we used to pour water on the bends so you could actually slide partially way around the, the bends. But then we discovered there was actually a proper cycle speedway club in Wall's End. And uh, we went down and were shocked and stunned that they had proper bikes and everything, because we had just normal bikes with no brakes on and rental handle bars strapped into the bikes, you know, the, the wrong size for the for the grips. So we used to put metal in like nails and things like this, just so we could <laughs> tighten them up. But uh, and then that's where I turned. We did go to Cycle Speedway, myself, Fred Mitchell, his brother, and there was a large group of work, uh, took that up and had some great times doing Cycle Speedway, but it's, it was far too energetic for me. Yeah, it's hard work, Cycle Speedway, all that pedalling, isn't it? Oh, it is, yeah. The gear ratio on them is uh, you've got to pedal like mad to go like a short distance, but uh, but it's also um, very aggressive, you know, that it, there's a lot of, um, shall we say, contact in cycle speedway. If you've never seen it, I, I would say have a look for one of the clubs and uh, go and have a look at it. It is really exciting to watch. Yeah, where um, where I grew up, which was in, in West Yorkshire, is a place called Heckmondwike, and uh, they've got a cycle speedway track there. And, and um, I remember my dad took us along and, and, and dropped my, uh, my BMX or whatever it would have been over the fence, and we sort of broke into the cycle speedway track. And it was a proper track that had been, you know... The, fit for purpose and everything because they have league racing there and uh, when you look now on YouTube and you see them racing they are clattering into each other and uh, yeah it's 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 uh, every man for himself yeah it is it's uh, it, it was I can remember riding up at um, Edinburgh there was two tracks at Edinburgh and I can't remember which one it was but uh, I was sort of like number one for the B team I never really got into the main team and uh, me and a young lad had a right coming together, coming off the second turn, and I took him right up the bank and left him hanging on a metal fence. And uh, to say um, he wasn't very uh, happy with what I did to him it was a bit of an understatement. But uh, I, I think that was sort of like the me idea that maybe I should try the motor motorized side of it. And uh, when did you get your first motorized speedway bike then? Um, I did it the right way, actually, uh, as far as I was concerned. Um, I hired a bike at Felton, the Felton Train, the track, which was very re- well run by uh, by Ken Marshall, um, Robin Dixon, Barry Dixon, people like that. Um, Will Hunter, the late Will Hunter, who became a referee. Um, and I hired a bike with all the gear, the leathers. All I had to do was supply a helmet and a pair of gloves. And I went up and, uh, uh, again, my friend, my friend Fred Mitchell, he went up with us and had a go. Um, I think Fred spent more time on his backside than what I did. And uh, I thought, I'm going to have another go. So I hired the bike again about a couple of months after that. And I went 
right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to have a go at this. There was only one problem. I couldn't drive, so um, I had to work out something regarding how to get my bike up there and everything like that. So um, I went out and bought my first bike, which was a two-valve Jawa um, off-wheel hunter. Took it home, painted up all the mud guards and everything, got a front fork cover off there. Barry Briggs, Barry Briggs had his spares down in Southampton and uh, got it all done up. And uh, that would be 1980. And uh, I sort of like potted round on that two valve for that season. Didn't really get anywhere that year. Um, I think I think I, there was more guts than glory from, on my part. And uh, so 1980 was like my first year racing. And, and how did you? I mean, because obviously nowadays there's the you know there are a lot of um, ways to to get involved in speedway at, at any level really, but to sort of learn how to slide a bike and, and and those skills like that. I mean, where did you learn to do that kind of thing? Was it just learning yourself on a on a training track? Did somebody show you? Uh, there was a light bulb came on in my head when Felton closed for the winter. Uh, my uncle and I and a lad called John Foley who uh, very rarely rode at Felton. And this will come apparent very soon. Um, we went up to Durridge Bay on the, up the Northumberland coast, and it's a massive uh, sand area when the tide goes out, and no safety fence. So that gave us the confidence to go in faster. And as I got faster, I started sliding it more. And me and John used to race each other on the beach, and you know we would just knock seven shades out of each other on, on the beach. I can remember one day I dived right over, under him in one turn, touched him and he straightened up and he just headed straight up the sand, up up, up the beach like a madman. It was <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah, I was up at Holy Island um, the other week and, and the tide was out then and I, I was wondering then, I was wondering does does, does anybody come down here and, and, and ride a speedway back, bike? Because it is a massive expanse of sand around there. Oh, yeah. Um, up at Scremiston, up at Berwick, they've, they've run meetings on the beach up there and also just during the winter. Mate, I think that's a long time ago, though, but uh, uh, it used to be a big thing at one time up there. So you, um, you, you, you've got your bike and, uh, you know, so we're talking the 1980 or so, and, and you're obviously feeling that it's worth giving it a crack and um, you, you, you've got a shot of uh, getting into a team perhaps at some point. So you kept going. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I decided it through the winter of eighty eighty one to sort of like upgrade my bike. So I went from a single two valve Jawa to um, a Neil Street conversion, um, and actually bought that off Frank Offred. I can't remember how I was put in touch with Frank, but uh, um, went down to Middlesbrough, met up with Frank, who bought me two valve Jawa offers because he wanted that for Bobby Beaton. It was going to be riding in the Wembley indoor, and Bobby wanted a full two-valve bike because he thought it would go better on the indoor tracks as what what the like the bigger four-valves were. So we did a deal. He took the two-valve of his. I took the Neil Street conversion off him. Um, took it home. The next weekend, my uncle and I went up to the beach at the uh, Bay. And I tried it out, and it was just so much easier for us to ride for some reason. I just took to it straight away. There was only one problem. The, the day was cut short because my uncle wanted to have a go at it. So I says, right, go on, have a go. And he jumped on it and rode straight into the sea. <laughs> ah. Yeah. So, engine flooded. <laughs> yeah, engine flooded. So that, that was back home, full strip down, and uh, back again the next week. 
Oh dear, the trials and tribulations. But you sold you sold your original bike then to Bobby Beaton. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was funny because um, back the nineteen eighty four, I think it was. I could be wrong with that day. I actually spanned for Bobby for a few meetings at Newcastle and uh, got to know him very well. So yeah. Smashing bloke, Frank Offred is as well. You know, everybody goes on about how fearless Frank Frank Offred was on track, and he was. You know, um, his races with Jack Millen at Sunderland and at Middlesbrough are legendary because they would just go for each other for four laps every time they went out. But uh, off the track, what a nice bloke he is. You find that about a lot of the races, though. I mean, I think that's a thing throughout the whole of Speedway, isn't it? That you can have very, very hard races on the track, but off the track, you know, absolute gentlemen. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, um, you know, up at Felton, uh, there was, like, we were all friends, but there was the likes of myself, Steve Bain, Gary Riddell, who went on to ride for Newcastle, and a few others. You know, we'd go out and race each other, and it was like it'd be a world final. You know, we just felt them on Sunday afternoon practicing. But if we went out with each other, everybody wanted to beat each other. So it it really brought you on that way. And as you were coming through at Felton, what other names would you be riding alongside who were also trying to make their name in the sport as well at the same time? Um, as, I, as I just mentioned, a young man, Gary Riddell, I think he didn't go as far as he could have done. He rode um, half a dozen meetings for Newcastle. But I also rode against people like um, Phil Jeffries, um, Brett Saunders, who uh, both them rode for Edinburgh. Brett, um, Phil Jeffries had a good career with Newcastle for a few years. Um, we'd get Rod Hunter, who would come up, who was like Newcastle's number one. He would be a great help. He, he used to help us a lot with me engines also. Rod, he was a cracking lad. Um, but a lot of lads used to come. Scott Lamb, uh, loads of lads come down from Edinburgh, all over the place. Um, Kevin Kay, who everybody will know now in the North East, is former promoter at uh, Redcar and still very much involved there. He used to ride at the same time as myself. It's a small world. Oh, a very small world, yeah. <laughs> but uh, a, a good world because, uh, you know, everybody knows each other, everybody gets on with each other. And uh, it's, you know, like I went to Scunthorpe on Sunday and it was like a family reunion everywhere you turned. Hello, hello. And obviously you've got to keep your social distancing. Well, of course, yes, yes. But, you know, you can keep your two metres and still say hi. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> this is Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan, and in this episode, I'm joined by Roy Clark, who's a well-known voice at Speedway Tracks in the North East, on the Centre Green at Redcar and uh, Newcastle. Uh, also been a mechanic, he's opened his homes to many riders who have uh, needed a place to kip. We'll hear about that in just a bit, and plus he's all-time 1-7, to seven, still to come. Uh, but back to your riding career, things were going fairly well in, the, in your early days, uh, pretty promising uh, maybe a career as a, as a team rider was was beckoning, but it didn't really get off the ground, and that all came down to mental problems, really, that um, weren't really spoken about. There was no support back in that time, and that really affected your career as as a speedway rider right from the off. Yeah, eighty um, one was a great year. Um, I won the felt pairs with James Ewan. I came third behind Phil Jeffries and uh, Gary Riddell in the Felton Junior Championship. And in the winter, I decided to get rid of the, the, the fall valve, the Neil Street fall valve, and get a Westlake. And I think it was a big mistake because I never got the hang of it. It was used to be belonged to 
Tony Boyle, who you may remember from Bradford days, he used to write for the uh, Bradford Bradford Northern, I think it was at the time. And uh, I got that bike, and it just couldn't get away with it. I spent more time on my backside than what I did anything else. And the more I tried, the more I would fall off. And as the times went on, it got to a point where I was, when I was getting on the bike, I was so stiff and shaking and just my head wasn't there you know and people are saying to you oh just go out and do it you know it, you know pull yourself together give yourself a shake and I, you know the more I've, I've tried the worse it got so it came to an end one day when uh, I had about three or four crashes smashed two helmets one belonged to me and I think one belonged to my cousin and I thought no that's it came home uh, swapped the bike for a Mark II Cortina and uh, sold, sold the leathers I had to Harry Tate and uh, that was the end of my career, never to ride again. And so what was it specifically that was that mental block when it came to, to riding a speedway bike? Was it the fear of crashing because you'd had those few crashes or was it was it something else? Yeah, it was more, of, it was the fear of crashing, it was anxiety, it was... Um, you know, it, I was feeling physically sick at the time. Um, I've learned since then um, through problems I've had in my own life since then with, with anxiety that what I was feeling at then was more of a mental thing than anything else. And uh, I think if I knew now what I knew then, I would probably have done something about it, have I had a break for a period probably got some help and you know had a good talk with someone and uh, maybe came back to speedway but mental health in them days as very much as it is still now i suppose um is like a something nobody talks about you know if you mention it there's a lot of people who'll back off back off from it and uh, not they don't acknowledge it as like an illness it is something that you've been campaigning on for, for quite a long time, for, for a number of years, isn't it? Um, mental health uh, among speedway riders, and it's something that you're very keen to to see uh, change within the sport. Um, obviously, it can affect riders in small ways, but in the extreme circumstances, it, it can lead to tragedies as well, as we were, were well aware of uh, earlier this year with a rider that you will have worked very closely with at Red Carter, Danny Ayres, and um, we don't want more of those kind of tragedies in any sport, but uh, particularly in Speedway? Oh, yeah. Um, I'll come on to Danny Ayres in a moment. Um, back in May 2018, um, I wrote an article for the, the Newcastle Match Day magazine about mental health, and I put in, you know, my thoughts of what, you know, when I was writing. But I also then contacted, like, referees, um, the track doctors at Newcastle, and... Uh, Speedway Control Bureau, uh, Neil Vatcher, uh, Paul Ackroyd at the, the Speedway Riders Benevolent Fund to see what they did regarding people suffering from mental health. Um, regarding the referees and the track doctors, there was nothing in place for them. Um, there is there is now, and I'll come up to that in a, in a second, but uh, Paul Ackroyd of the Speedway Riders Benevolent Fund you know, got talked to him regarding that. And yeah, he does an awful lot of help behind the scenes for riders who suffer with mental health. And, uh, you know, he's working with Danny Ayres, his uh, partner, to help her and the two kids. Um, Neil Vatcher, um, 
just at the beginning of this year, um, did uh, some seminars with track staff, uh, clerk of the courses, it's um, all over the country. And uh, Stephen Barton, who is a, a psychologist at Newcastle um, RVI, and he's a lecturer. Um, I actually got in touch from, from regard, well, he got in touch with me from the article I did. I got him in touch with Neil Vatcher. And uh, since then, Stephen, Neil Vatcher, at the beginning of this year, has done a lot of lectures with, uh, with track staff and everything like that, but how to spot things. You know how to help people and things like this which is is a massive massive step no good on you roy you know it's it's not an easy thing to tackle and it would be easy just to ignore it and let it go but you know it's a it is an important subject and i think in speedway being a red-blooded adrenaline fueled sport you know it's an awkward subject to bring up yeah it's you know everybody can see somebody who's got a broken wrist or a bro broken leg or you know uh, a sling on or something like that but when you're suffering from uh, mental health very few people will be able to tell, be able to see, because everybody puts a, a face on, they put a mask on, and they live behind the mask, and it isn't until they get away from it, uh, either get away from the speedway or, or get into their own home environment, that they, they take off that mask and they, they show their real self. To hear that speedway riders are, you know, only humans might come as a surprise to some people, but you know, as you mentioned there, they have they have got stress and anxiety and maybe some low mood going on in their minds as they pull up to the tapes. You know, what is it for a speedway rider that that causes the biggest stresses uh, about the sport? Well, obviously, it's um, it's very much you get paid for the amount of points you score, um, and if you're not scoring enough points, you're not getting paid enough. Plus, there's also, um, if you've been a rider or if you come to the end of the season, you've gone through from March to the end of October of an extremely busy time if you have not raced and you're cleaning bikes. And it's such an exciting time between them periods. And when you come to the end of October, basically, bang, you may go from everything to nothing. And if you've got nothing to do, your mind starts working overtime and you start making mountains out of molehills and things like that and and, and starting not to think so logically um so speedway keeps your mind going it keeps you interested um I've, i had problems a few years ago um where it came to the end of the season and i had nothing to look forward to and basically i, I lost the, the ability to talk I couldn't come out the house. I couldn't drive to work. You know, as soon as I came out the house, I started shaking. I started wanting to cry. You know, total anxiety and uh, and fear. Um, and thankfully, uh, through psychologists, um, I got myself turned around after about three or four months. Um, it just happened that. The, just before I was due to go back to work, I actually broke me broke me humerus on my left arm, so that put us off work for another another three months. But uh, but I think that did us a little bit more good than anything else because it gave us a little bit more break to get myself back to normal, getting back to work. As you've mentioned, Roy, you know mental health is something that can't be seen, and you never know what's going on inside uh, what otherwise seems to be a, a happy personality, and that can be characterised particularly with 
Danny Ayres, who sadly passed away earlier this year, and uh, a rider that you will have worked closely with at Redcar. You do the Centre Green announcing there, and, and you'll have known very well. He was, yeah, yeah. And uh, what you can see about Danny Ayres, and I think everybody sees it, is what a cracking bloke he was around Speedway. Um, what a breath of fresh air. You know, I used to call him Mr Entertainment because he was as soon as he came to the stadium he had time for everybody you know he would do interviews if you asked him you know on track he'd give a hundred percent in every single race um i i purchased the uh the the dvd that was done to raise uh, funds for his family the, the best of Daliers, and it goes from the start of his career where he spent more time off the bike than on the bike but you could see as he built up and everybody will remember his race at uh, the British final mm-hmm. with, with Chris Harris. Yeah. Fantastic race. That. Oh, unbelievable. But what was even better still is how we got there. The, uh, the semi-final at red car. And I think he got 10 points that day to get to the, get to the British final. And he, he went for it. You know, it was his time and he, you know, he was getting to that British final, uh, whatever we could do it, but uh, he put in some, brilliant race in that day and uh, you know we'll always remember Danny Ayres because of that one race in the British final but I'll remember him for an awful lot more races and interviews. Obviously a very outgoing personality I imagine in the interviews but you know real case in point that you never really know what's going on under that uh, perhaps more outgoing and happy exterior. It had been documented in the past and and, and it, I think it was a bit it was common knowledge that um, um, after his man passed away, I think he struggled a bit. Um, but nobody knew how bad it was. I think, you know, he kept it so hidden, so well hidden when he was at speed because he loved his racing. Um, and I, I actually had the privilege at uh, the Ben Fund meeting at Scunthorpe this year to do the Centre Green there. And uh, I spoke to Danny's um, partner, uh, his little girl. Uh, and his dad and uh, John Armstrong, the former rider at Mildenhall, um, about Danny on the centre green. And you could tell just from the whole stadium that they were listening to every single word they said. And they're also trying to do a lot to, you know, get the message forward regarding mental health and things like this. But uh, a wonderful family and, uh, you know, Danny's memory will, will keep keep going on because we'll all remember him for for his speedway side absolutely and you know not least that uh, that British final moment that you, you mentioned just a few moments ago too yeah I, I think probably Chris Harris will you know say to anybody now that he, he wished he actually came second in that race but <laughs> uh, in a way you know Danny's even though he you know he lost it on the last bend but how he stopped on that bike it was just pure will to win yeah. brute force and, and skill also but uh, how the crowd reacted to him was just unbelievable absolutely fantastic and a great ride that really epitomises Danny Ayres for us to uh, remember him by if that last section we just talked about uh, regarding mental health has, has resonated with you in any way there is a, a place you can go to get further advice if you'd like to talk to someone uh, it's important that you do so that's the underlying message speak out get some help if you need it 
Uh, kindtoyourmind.org is one place you can go. That's from the NHS. And uh, there's lots of things on there that you can do. There's um, ways you can get um, help online, online courses, and also numbers of people you can ring if uh, you need to speak to someone in person as well. But um, please do that and don't suffer in silence. Now on Humans of Speedway, let's turn our attention with Roy Clark to something else that he's offered the sport. And that's when riders come over here, leaving behind their homelands, wherever that is in Europe, Sweden or Denmark, and they uh, have to take up residency in the northeast. Quite a culture shock, I'm sure, but um, one place they can go and stay is Roy's. I've been lucky enough to have you know, some really smashing people stop with us, um, you know, when we get on to like uh, my dream meeting later on, a, a few of them are involved with that, but, uh, you know, people up in the northeast here at Newcastle will know that I've had people like Bjarne Pedersen, uh, Kenneth Bier, Kenny Lawson, uh, stop with us, at the, you know, over different periods of time. Um, but, uh, it's like it was like a halfway house. It's sort of like a bed and breakfast for speedway riders. Also, you know, the, the Warrell lads used to stop here. James Greaves, um, anybody who needed somewhere to kip, you know, just crashed at my house. Actually, I can remember when Phil Phil Morris rode at uh, Newcastle, and we had the end of season due. This was on a Saturday night, and we had everybody sort of like landed back at my house for a party, and Phil came back. Now Phil's teetotal. And uh, he was up all night and then jumped in his van next morning and drove home. But he wasn't driving straight home because he was running the training school at Stoke Speedway on the Sunday on his way home. Always on the ball, is Phil. Yes, he is. Yes, he is. <laughs> I'll tell you what, it's, it's uh, paying off what he did, what he's done, also what Neil Vatter's done, because we have got some wonderful talent in this country at the moment. And hopefully, once this COVID-19 clears up or they find a way to get round it so everybody can get back to watch Speedway all over the country. Uh, we've got some phenomenal talent coming through. Yeah, well, I spoke about this with um, with Phil when, when we did the um, the episode with him, but I know that he's um, particularly excited for Robert Lambert, who's kind of the first um, to sort of really come through and, and make it into the GPs uh, as, he, as he has done. But I know that um, he's got his eye on a number of other youngsters that are um, that are coming through the ranks as well very quickly. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, you know, just up in the northeast here, you know, Berwick's got the likes of uh, young Flinty, Leon Flint, um, Newcastle. I've got Archie Freeman, Danny Smith, both two 15-year-olds coming through. Um, Archie, very impressive on Sunday at Scunthorpe, took some big scalps down there. And you've got down at sort of like Redcar, um, Elliot Kelly and uh, Alex Goldsborough and... Uh, you know, that's just a few lads at the name, and I could probably keep going on, like Owen Booth, people like that, who are all coming through, like the 125s up to the 250s, to the 500s. And for the first time, I would say, in a lot of years, I'm I'm thinking, you know, we're going in the right direction with our youth policy in this country. Yeah, and it's something that's not very uh, very quick to fix. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It takes time, but um, things certainly seem to be going in very much in the right direction now. Yeah, certainly, and uh, the tracks are given time for the kids as well now. You know, red cars are still running their training sessions. Uh, there's the small training track up at Duns, up at Berwick, which is uh, just reopened, I believe. But, uh, you know, obviously when I rode, we had Felton up here. Um, but at Newcastle on a, on a Monday night, I would get one ride. 
Yeah. One ride only. Now you've got all the junior leagues and things like this, which is it's phenomenal. When you had these riders staying around then, I think particularly Newcastle um, is quite a different city for from from a lot of the uk because i mean it's a fabulous city but you know the people uh very strong accented perhaps from you know the queen's english in in say swindon um how how do they what do they make of 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 newcastle when they come over from sweden or denmark or wherever they've come from what do they what do they make of the people um well i think certainly with the danes we're very similar you know because when if you look back in history um when the Danes came over, uh, they sort of landed in the northeast here, um, and some of our words that we use, in, like Geordie words, like "gang yem," <laughs> it's like going home in Geordie. It's the same in in uh, Danish. It, Danish is for going home is "gang yem." It's not really. It is. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So yeah. Um, it, I've got to remember, you know, when Bjarne Pedersen first came over, Bjarne uh, could hardly speak English. So um, Bjarne ended up with very much a, a jolly accent. But after the two years, he left here. But, uh, you know, <laughs> great times. You know, the problem was with the house as well. It, it's not the same deco as what it is now because I hadn't been moved in long. And the previous person who had my house was a, was a young lady and everything was pink. So this house got known as the Pink Palace for for a lot of years. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I, th- I think we've got very much the same sort of like mentality as well. You know, sort of like very friendly and things like this. So yeah. um, you know, we got on great. You know, I, I it, when um, Kenneth B.S. stopped at my house, you know, I, I wouldn't just have Kenneth for some weekends. You know, Lassa would be here as well. Who's you know, Lassa was only about five or six at the time when he when he came over to to stop um i'd have his his dad ivan stop in here uh, you know kenny larson's dad used to stop here um quite a few times and which was quite funny because uh would would have a peter and i would have a little drink in the house and it was uh one morning kenny came downstairs and he came running back upstairs he says roy you've got to come down and see see me dad and uh came downstairs and his, his dad was lying on my settee and he was cuddling me Dyson vacuum cleaner. <laughs> so, so, so we we called him Dyson from then onwards. It all happens at the Pink Palace. It all happens at the Pink Palace. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are the stories I can't tell you. There's a lot I can't tell you. Yeah, well, that's right. We want to protect the names of the uh, of, of the innocent and the guilty. Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, exactly. And it must have been good though, because for the for the riders finding somewhere to stay i mean I, I guess some of them around the country would find you know maybe a b&b to, to, to live at or or whatever or some kind of guest house but to to share a house with somebody who's involved in the sport and actually knows a little bit about you know speedway bikes engines track craft and, and all that kind of stuff must have been you know good good for both of you really to to, to be able to enjoy conversations like that yeah, it, it was. I've also got um, a large collection of videos and uh, DVDs of different tracks all over the country. Um, so, you know, it was it was a common place for them to sit and watch a meeting before they'd go to an away track just to see what the track was like. Ah. So they weren't going in sort of like totally blind. Mind you, I think I regretted it when I showed a couple of the riders meetings from Exeter when they said, oh, that's big, that's bumpy. I says, wait till you see the safety fence, it's steel. Yes. <laughs> yeah, old school safety fence. 
Um, so, and, and you were a mechanic for some of these riders as well. Yeah, I've, I've, I've spanned for a lot of riders. Um, I didn't particularly span for Bjarne and Kenneth, even though they lived with me, because at the time I was mechanic for Jesper Olsen, um, who was captain of Newcastle, um, another Dean, who's actually just recently moved back to Denmark, uh, him and his wife and uh, his daughters have moved back moved back to uh, Denmark um, up till recently he's been living at Bedlington just up the road from here mm. and uh, me and him you know kept in touch we uh, we we were known as the old rockers by his uh, by his wife because we used to go down, out to gigs and uh, have a have a, a blooming good time listening to music why not but, uh, yeah but uh, no, I've had uh, uh, sort of like my dream team is it's not a who's who, but it's uh, names of riders that I've mechanic for. I have when I've gone for the dream team, I haven't decided to go for like the world champions at Newcastle because it would be easy for us to go for Ivan, Ollie, and yeah. as Nicky. Um, I'm <laughs> stuck with riders I've actually spanned for, but I, I can't put all of them in because uh, uh, you know I've spanned for people like Stephen Mill, Mel, Scott Smith. Over the period of time, but uh, okay. a, a lot of good lads have spanned tour as well. Well, what we'll do is we'll come to that in a moment. Um, your uh, your speedway paradise. We'll, we'll do that. I just want to touch now on your centre green um, antics because oh, um, yeah. a lot of people will know you. I mean, you've you've actually done the centre green announcing for for one of the only speedway meetings to to happen. Certainly, the only top level speedway meeting to happen in in Britain so far, at least. In 2020, with the with the Ben Fund meeting, so um, how did you get involved in in grabbing the mic and and, and heading out there onto the centre green? Because it is a role that you know it, it must be fairly nerve wracking to head out there and and speaking to people is you know it isn't easy doing this kind of thing. I, I will say from my own experience, I find um, you know this very very easy being on the radio very very easy because you you don't really have any knowledge of how many people are listening or, or anything like that but when you're actually physically stood in front of people i think that's that's much more of a, a much more difficult job um yeah it, it at first it was and uh, it was very much by accident that i sort of like stumbled into it um i think it was 2013 i was mechanic for stevie worrell and stevie was going through a tough time at reserve at newcastle and uh, decided to step down and i'd already decided that steve was going to be the last trade i was going to mechanic for um through problems with my hands and things like this so george english and uh, steve brock the photographer at newcastle um came up to us and went do you fancy doing the center green because that they had a gentleman at the time i think he he, he ran the the quiz at uh, at a local pub um, wasn't a particular wasn't a speedway fan, but uh, you know he was doing a good job, but he didn't know speedway if you know what I mean. And I just went, well, yeah, I'll give it a go. I'll, let's see how how it goes. And uh, I sort of like did it, and uh, I put my own stamp on it. Um, I think I'm a bit. Bit, bit bit like marmites with some fans. They either love us or they hate us. Because um, I, I gave you trader a nickname. Um, at Newcastle and up at Berwick, I, every raider had their own theme tune. Um, so I, what I did was I looked at like announcers from the past and the ones now, the likes of Porky, um, Dick Barry, 
uh, Dennis McCreary up at Berwick, you know, Peter York, um, who have done the centre greens in the past for years and years. And so I took little bits from each of them and then also stuff from other sports. Um, I was seeing what people were doing at other things like boxing, um, the WWE wrestling. You know, I took a lot of of sort of like ideas from that and sort of like chucked it in the melting pot and see what see what came of it yeah and you, and you make it your your own as well i think your accent um in its in itself it, you know gives you your own sound anyway so it doesn't sound like you're you know you're ripping people off or, or in any way i mean you know you, you it's okay to be influenced by by those that have gone before i mean i think your trademark is maybe the the nicknames for the for the various riders yeah, yeah. Some of them I stumble on. Some of them um, are like a, a, like a light bulb moment, and uh, <laughs> but uh, the, you know, it's it's more for the kids because the kids love it. You know, um, at Newcastle, everybody, the kids used to love it saying Super Stevie Worrell. Yeah, you know, and it'd get behind it. I've had some daft ones like the Lean Mean Racing Machine, Andrew Tully. That was that was the one I enjoyed. Uh, uh, I did have a I did have a nickname from Pryor. We can't say what it is today because because uh. I, I named him after a, a group of friends that he had, and I then found out what it what it meant while I was saying, and I went, "Oh my god, I can't say that again." <laughs> I'm trying to think of the ones that uh, that that I remember from that you saying the B52. Who was that? Oh. Uh, yeah, that's um, Anderson. Yeah, yeah. known as B fifty two Anderson. Yeah, <laughs> um, there was also um, Ben Barker, Bionic Ben Barker, the six million dollar <laughs> skipper. <laughs> Wasn't the one for Ashley Morris as well? I seem to remember. Uh, yes, Same. the black, the black country blaster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he keeps saying, he kept coming up to school. Not from the black country. Well, you sound like you're from the black country. That'll do for me. <laughs> yeah it's all good stuff and i think we do talk about you know presentation and and things like that at speedway meetings and it's something we touched on with with phil um phil morris because obviously the, the grand prix are probably you know the slickest uh of, of all meetings that you'll ever see but not every meeting is like that but i think with a bit of personality like like y- yourself sort of offers then it um it it does make a difference to the experience for everybody, and say particularly for families and so on. Well, that's it. Yeah, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I think speedway uh, is being pushed the wrong way these days. We, we've always said it's a family sport. Yes, it is a family sport. You know, any age can go, but I think we're losing um, a big chunk of like kids between twenty, twenty five, thirty. Um, because if you look at the age range that go to Speedway, it's either very young kids or it's uh, people of a, a slightly older age. But I think if we, we could get into the 20-year-olds and that, that would uh, bring the sport even more forward. Um, I'd love to do some extreme stuff like on the centre greens, but it's, it's, it's doing it. Um, there's two, two gentlemen who are um, wrestlers for the WWE UK UK NXT, um, uh, who are both massive Speedway fans. Uh, a lad called Jaylen Melrose, who actually wrestles as the pri- primate, did second halves at Newcastle back in the mid-2005, uh, uh, 2006. 
and uh, stopped writing because he broke his arm at Scunthorpe. But uh, he's now big with uh, the WWE. Uh, Dave Mastiff, who actually wrestles with Cradley Heath's emblem on his on his knee pads, <laughs> he, he's 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 a a massive uh, Speedway fan. I've always wanted to put a wrestling ring at the front of the terrace, and they come out to have a fifteen minute fight, and at the end of that, say it's going to be a one all draw. All right, well, that get in the ring. Right, there's only one way to decide it. At the interval in this meeting tonight, used to match race on a speedway bike. Then the, the lads will do it. You know, they would love to do it. I've I've spoke to both of them regarding it. They would love to do it. <laughs> that would be really good. Mixing wrestling and speedway together seamlessly. Yeah, and the thing is, why why hasn't anybody tried to get Guy Martin up against John McGuinness for a match race? John McGuinness yeah. <laughs> has got a speedway break. Guy Martin will do anything. Maybe there's a Channel Four program in that. Oh, I think there certainly is. <laughs> Can we, we'll put it forward to them. Yeah, me and you, let's get down Channel 4. They're only in Leeds these days. Let's crack on. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, we, we have to go down different avenues and uh, different ways of the presenting side. Redcar, um, I love doing Redcar because I've got Smoggy the Bear to work with and Keith McGee up in the box. And, and you're very close to the, the fans there. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, uh, Smoggy's trainer Samantha is is a trained dancer and you know great entertainer and me and her work really well together. You know, you know this this fat lad can bust a few moves every now and then. Yeah, I mean, I I know, <laughs> I know that you um you know you you do work very hard and and you do work hard on entertaining the crowd and there are those lulls in in any meetings during track grades or they're replacing a piece of the air fence or whatever that maybe takes 15, 20 minutes or so. And, you know, you have to have um, a few tricks up your sleeve, don't you? And, and you know, I think it's keeping the audience sort of engaged, isn't it, through that time? Well, that's it, yeah. Um, I was trying to remember what year it was. But, uh, back in 2016, um, it was, I did uh, the Fours weekend at Peterborough, which was five meetings in two days. It was the three, there was three semi, full semi-finals on the Saturday, then there was an individual meeting on the Sunday, and then the final of the Fours that afternoon, and it was just finding different things for us to do. I was going into the crowd, um, I was you know, interviewing people. I actually managed to get some people onto the centre green as well to watch races. Um, but one of the funniest things was uh, at the individual meeting on, on the Sunday, we had four young ladies doing the start gate. And uh, I just said to them, I said, if, if I, anybody is just wants to nip off for a little break, I'll take over for you. <laughs> and I went, all right. <laughs> and it just happened that the young lady that was in blue decided she wanted to nip off so i'd watched what they were doing regarding the the, the, the routine at the start so i went out and did did the routine with them exactly <laughs> you know which went down well with the well with the, the with the fans but what was even better was the rider that was pulling into gear two was Richie Worrell, who, who I, obviously I used to mechanic for also. And Richie just looked at us and just shook his head and just went, and I went well, Richie Worrell knows me, so he's used to this. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, well, you know, you're showing, showing all sides of your, uh, your skill set there. Oh well, yeah. There was there was one point I was I was threatening I was I was talking to the uh, the lad who was 
driving the tractor, watering the tractor, because it was such a hot day. I says, if I lie down on the track, can you drive over us so I can get sprayed <laughs> by the water tank? But uh, health and safety played played its part in that one. It didn't oh. happen. It, it always does, doesn't it? It's always the health and safety, spoiling the fun. Uh, yeah, but if, if they don't know, they don't find out. You're listening to Humans of Speedway. I'm Ian Brannan. My guest in this episode is Roy Clark, a well-known figure in Speedway, particularly in the northeast. And you might have heard his voice at a number of meetings, both across the country, but particularly at Redcar and Newcastle and uh, Berwick as well over the last few years or so. Uh, and right now it's time for him to design his own dream Speedway meeting in our little feature called Speedway Paradise. Who's going to be in Roy's all-time one to seven? Uh, which track is he going to choose? Which rules are he going to change? We're about to find out. So, Roy, over to you. Uh, we're designing your meeting. First of all, we need to know which track you are going to choose as your all-time favourite track, purely for racing on. I've listened to a few of these podcasts, and I agree with a lot of people, you know, about uh, the new Bellevue, Hydroad, um, obviously Redcar, brilliant racetrack, um, but because of the meeting I'm putting on, the track shale and the track shape that I want is Newcastle's Brook Park from 2005. For some reason that year, um, the racing was brilliant. There was passing inside and outside, most meetings, and uh, it, it was it was great entertainment. So track shape and, and the shale, 2005, Newcastle Brook Park. And what... Tell us about Bruff Park and what it's like to, to, to ride on it, because it is um, quite a technical track, isn't it, as they go? I think a lot of um, teams sort of struggle there as, as the away side, because it's one of those where you, you do have to slow down for the corners. It's not a, a full wind-it-on job, is it? it? It is. It's it's a thing in Raiders' track. Um, they're very long straights and very tight turns. Um, the track's rather narrow, even though it's actually been widened uh, both on both bends and on the straights, but uh, it is still very narrow. But uh, you've got to use your, your brain to to race around there. You know, uh, everybody says, oh, it's too much of a gator's track, but it, it, it isn't. Um, if you watch the racing from that, that year, and actually the, the Edinburgh match from Newcastle last year, the, which was uh, the knockout cup, Josh Pickering for Edinburgh came from 15 metres back to win Heat 14. Um, in one of the most phenomenal rides I've ever seen at Newcastle. But uh, it is a very, very technical track. And as Ivan Major once said, if you can ride Newcastle, you can ride anywhere. Yeah, it didn't do him any harm, did it? No, he, he won a few <laughs> things in his time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. OK, let's look at the stadium that you would put that track in then. This is going to surprise a lot of people, but I'm going to go for Wimbledon. Hmm. Um, OK. Sadly lost to all sports um last year uh, uh, but i can remember going down as a child to watch the, uh, individual meetings like the laurels uh then going later on for the national league riders championship and uh, things like that and i always thought that that stadium produced a fabulous atmosphere um it was you know as i can remember there's a lot of wooden area, um, plastic seating, you could sit in behind the glass if you wanted to, but it, a lot of it was, was very much open, um, covered all round, and the atmosphere which just seemed to be absolutely phenomenal. Okay, so the Bruff Park track in uh, Wimbledon's stadium, 
Um, and now we move on to the big question, which I think is the one that fascinates the most people. You're, you're one to seven. And now you've said that you're one to seven that you are picking here are all riders that you have been a mechanic for, a spanner man for. Yeah, there is. And uh, apologies to any rider who I've spanned for that I've, I, I don't mention in this. It's not because I didn't enjoy it, because I enjoyed riding, uh, spannering for everybody. Um, it's just that these lads sort of like stick out my mind. Um, and the first one at number one is a gentleman we've mentioned already, Bjarne Pedersen. Uh, Newcastle 2000 and 2001 won the championship in 2001. Um, Brilliant lad, very very professional. Um, I've I've seen him sit in my house at the kitchen kitchen table, and uh, he'd be designing stuff for next season. Well, this while that season was still going ahead, you know, he's so mm. organised, uh, so unbelievable. Um, you know, great great lad, and uh, thankfully I think he's going to do one more year. He was due to retire this year, but uh, he is going to do one more year. He was going to go over for the Newcastle's 90th anniversary meeting. Um, I'd spoke to him regarding that, and uh, a deal had been done with the Newcastle promotion, so he was coming over for that. And hopefully next year, um, if he doesn't fancy riding in Poland, maybe let's have one more season out of Bjarne Pedersen in the UK. That would be fantastic as far as I'm concerned. That would be nice because he's had he's had a cracking career, hasn't he? He's been in the Grand Prix and ridden for his country, and you know he's he's done everything. Yeah, yeah. I I, I was lucky um, to spend some time with the, the the Danish national team when the the World Team Cup was held at Peterborough. Uh, the likes of Nicky, uh, um, Bjarne, last uh, Kenneth Bier, people like that. It's uh, it, you know great bunch, great great bunch of people. But, uh, okay, so who's at number two then, behind Bertie Bjarne? Um, the the young man who took over Bjarne's mantle as number one at Newcastle, Kenneth Bier, uh, 2002-2003. Uh, KB, phenomenal little rider. Um, used to love it really, really deep at Newcastle. And he would just get his bike out in the dirt on the outside and just blast around. Very, very spectacular little rider. And I think he would have went on a lot more further in the sport. I think he could have easily have picked up a world championship if he hadn't had the, the, the couple of injuries he's had. Um, you know, he's done the business as Danish champion and things like this and done it on the on the world stage. But uh, I think he could have won a world championship at, at least once if he hadn't picked up the injuries. Yeah, I mean, injuries obviously a permanent hazard in, in, in Speedway, aren't they? But um, they come at the, right, the wrong time and they can really sort of inhibit your performance and, and I guess in his case you know, it cost him really um, you know positioning the Grand Prix yeah exactly it did yes but, uh, but uh, still going strong and uh, hopefully we'll get him back over in this country to, to ride in this country but uh, um, still doing the business in in Poland and uh, you know it's still great to watch still a very good rider indeed Okay then. Um, so Bjarne Pedersen, Kenneth Bier, um, big on the Danes. Who's next? Yeah, we have three in a row, three Danes <laughs> in a row. Kenny Larson. Yeah. Abs- you know, tragic um, that a uh, speed career was cut short by you know a freak accident. Um, I was lucky enough to spanner for Kenny in 2010. Uh, and Kenny actually lived with us here. Um, at, that year also, and uh, Kenny won the uh, the Premier League Raiders Championship at Sheffield. Um, 
which was was brilliant. You know, um, his dad and uh, his Danish mechanic was over that weekend, and uh, but Kenny said to them, "Listen, Roy's been with us all season in England. It's me and Roy in the pits today. You can go up into the bar and have a drink." So it was it was a great day, a great season, because he's he's such a funny character. Um, you never know what he's going to do. He's uh, actually, and you can't get mad with him. I can remember uh, as I was out one night. Actually, he took us up to a pub up in Killingworth, just outside Newcastle, and uh, I was having a couple of couple of beers up there with uh, Bob Boardman, who uh, works at Newcastle, and uh, a couple of others, and. Kenny went, I've got to go home. I've got to get myself ready for for Sunday. This was Friday night, right? <laughs> so come back home later. And as I walk into my street, my front door's open, all my lights are on. And I'm going, what's going on here? There was no van in the, in the drive. So come in the house. Kenny, where are you? Nowhere. So I rang him up. Kenny, where are you? I'm at Alec. <laughs> You're at Alec? He said, I says, you've left the house open. He went, oh, I haven't, have I? I says, I have left all the lights on the house open and the front door's wide open. Uh, yeah, so he got distracted <laughs> and just dived in the van and went straight up to Alec. Yeah, and for those not sure the, the distances, I mean, that's like a that's like a good 20, 30 miles away. Yeah, th- yeah 30 miles, yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> but uh, I couldn't, you know, you kind of... You kind of stop angry with him because he's, he's just he was he's just a, such a lovely lad and uh, he came over um was it last year it must have been last year because uh, Archie Freeman was um doing very well in the 150 cc class of the British Youth Championship and the final was held at Newcastle and uh, we actually got Kenny to come over for when Archie won hopefully he, thankfully he did win so. Kenny Larson presented Archie with the trophy because Kenny was Archie's hero. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay. So Kenny Larson then. Um, who at number four? Is it another? Is it four Danes in a row? No, it's not, but I'm oh. going to cheat. Go on. Can I cheat? Well, go on, Roy, as it's you. Yeah. <laughs> and it'll work out. You'll know why in a second. All right. Richie Steve Worrell. Right. Okay. So it's 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 um it's the twins. A a, a Worrell hybrid. The Worrell hybrid, because uh, Richie, the flamboyant brother, um, hard riding, uh, Steve, um, the more I would say Lee Adams type rider, the smooth, um, controlled. You know, both excellent riders, both superb number ones. Um, you know, I had some great times with them. I can remember uh, when they were still riding in the National League for the Sheffield and Scunthorpe National League team. We went to the National League pairs at, uh, at Newport and uh, they did nothing but bicker all through the meeting. But uh, by gum, when they're on the track and the riders a pair, they were, they were phenomenal. It, you know, it was pure telepathy between the two of them. A great family. I used to go when I used to go down there and uh, stop over for the weekend. They had one of these big, massive motorhomes that you used to use when they were doing the motocross, and I used to sleep in that. But it was it was bigger than my house. You don't see don't see speedway riders with motorhomes anymore so much. No, it didn't even my days. I had, my uncle had a maxi, and we had me bike on the back of the maxi. <laughs> so, oh, saying that we um, Kelly, Kelly Kenneth Bier had a um, a hybrid a high 
high top long wheelbase um, transit van, which we used to call the ice cream van. But uh, we had some great times of that. Kenneth used to get bored on away trips and uh, you'd be driving down the M1 and all of a sudden you would get a bottle of coffees and cold water just poured straight over the top of you. <laughs> well, it spices up the journey, Roy. Oh, it certainly does. Yeah, yes, there's been some strange old journeys in my time. Number five then, who's, who's, um, who's going there in that, uh, in that position? Yeah, number five and captain is uh, my fellow old rocker, Jesper Olsen. Uh, yeah. um, I had five years with uh, Jesper, four at Newcastle, well, four and a bit at Newcastle and, and uh, like half a season at Bellevue with them and uh, had some great times. Our musical taste is more or less exactly the same and uh, we would just sit in the van, crank the music up. Jesper would get take his shoes off, put his feet on the dashboard and we'd, he'd just chill out and we'd just be driving down the road listening to rock music all the way. So, <laughs> it's like sort of paint a picture of, uh, was it like Bill and Ted or something like that? Oh, definitely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bjorn Pedersen once travelled with us and uh, we decided to have a Kate Bush day, so we drove all the way from <laughs> Newcastle to Lakeside with Kate Bush on. Uh, poor old Bjorn, was, uh, his head was done in by the time we got down there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think probably most people's had to be done in by uh, by Middlesbrough, to be honest, uh, from <laughs> travelling down with Kate Bush on. But anyway, you know, it's uh, one way to prepare. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing that w- we have talked about um, in previous episodes, I think particularly it was the Neil Machin one when he was um, he was mechanic for Rob Woofenden, um, is sort of what a what a close relationship that mechanics have with the riders. You know, when you are the the regular spanner man and you, you go into all of the meetings and stuff, it is a, a a close partnership between the two of you, isn't it? I mean, obviously, the, the rider goes out and gets the points on the night, but you are a crucial part of the whole thing, not least, um, you know, choosing the tunes in the car. Yeah, you get to know um, how each other think. Um, you know, you, you'll watch a rider go out and see the ride he's had, and uh, you'd, you'd listen to the engine here if it was revving going, too much going down the straight, different things like this. And But what I used to do is, obviously listen to the, what the rider says you know i would never say do this do that i would only do that if they said to me do you think i should do this and yeah mm. but uh, you get to know how each other think anyhow and you certainly have a rider's coming in and uh, the, the last gentleman on my team we we very much had that you know he would come in after a race and and you know i'd either put point my finger up and go up one or down one or shorten the wheelbase you know and things like that you just you just got to know how each other think and uh it it does become a a real bond between you and is is there a sort of a magic trick that you had up your sleeve that you know more often than not worked in 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 sort of sorting a bike out or was it just sort of you know like you say keeping an eye on specifics for for each track oh yeah you have little routines with with all riders, um, it's one we're talking about Jesper Olsen. Um, Jesper had real problems with the shoulder uh, for a lot of his career at Newcastle. It kept popping out. Um, I've actually, I've been lying in bed one at night and uh, the phone would go and it'd be uh, Jesper's wife, Carol, saying, can you do us a favour? Can you come up and pick him up and take them to hospital? His shoulders popped out when he's rolled over in bed. You know, it, it was that bad at, at, at times. But uh, if Jesper did fall off, I used to know 
whether he was injured or whether he was okay by just the way he lay on the ground. We had a, a routine where if he just stopped still and he was lay flat on his stomach, I would just pick the bike up, go straight back to the pits and deal with the bike. I'd have no worries about him at all because I knew he was okay. Does that buy you extra time to get the bike ready? Yeah, yeah. Little tricks like that or, you know, as, as you walk past uh, the team manager, certainly with George English, George, get on the foot of the ref, cause mayhem, you know, get some time or get the tractor out, get the track grade or something like that just to give a little bit extra time. I think we saw that in the Grand Prix at the weekend, didn't we, with with Ty Wuffenden. He sort of stayed, made sure he had a full a full check over before uh, before getting up. But um, funnily enough, his bike was ready for him to get straight back on. Yes, yeah. It's, <laughs> and at the back, you know, um, I used to signal to the pits if the bike I picked up was bent in some way that it wasn't going to be available to the rerun, is to point to the second bike and say, right, can somebody crank that up and get that started? So when I come in, I just put the the, the bent bike on the stand, I would concentrate on taking the back wheel out of that bike, ready to go into the second bike. Once that was warmed up, put the, second, put the wheel bent to that bike so it was ready for the rider to go out. See all these things going on while you're uh, supping on your bovril and munching your pie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think one of the worst things for, that a mechanic has to do, and I, I don't know a mechanic who actually enjoys doing it, is he's got to put a rear tyre on at the meeting. You yeah. can't put it on beforehand. So, um, you know, every every now and then you'll hear somebody go, oh, no, and you'll, go, and you'll shout over, oh, Jack the Nipper's here. In <laughs> 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 that tube's gone. Oh, dear. Right, OK, we've got two more riders in your team then. Um, who, who, are your, uh, who are your six and your seven? Yeah, number six, I'm going to go with Trent Leverington, um, Australian rider who rode for Newcastle in 2009. Um, had a not a good year to, at his standards that year, but I just got on so well with him. Um, used to enjoy travelling around with him. His uh, his his uh, engine tuner was Trevor Hedge, the former uh, Norwich rider in England International, and uh, there was quite a few times we had to load the bike up and take the engine down to Trevor Hedge in Norwich, and uh, spent a lot of time in in the van pottering around but uh, Trent was great to work with such a lovely lad um, deserved a better run at Newcastle don't think uh, the fans saw the best of it at the beginning of the season at the end of the season he was starting to fly again but uh, only did the one one year at Newcastle but uh, made a name for himself because um, he was uh, prone to doing a wheelie after the after a race if he'd won a race and uh, there was one particular uh, meeting, I think it was against Ipswich later on, yeah, and uh, they'd got a five, with, Newcastle got a five on, and Trent decided to do the wheelie where he stood on the push bar, and, you know, the bike was more or less vertical going down the home straight. Unfortunately, he went over the back, so oh. he made himself look a right idiot, but uh, <laughs> he, he just turned up, turned turned to the crowd and gave them a big bow, and they uh, got the biggest cheer of the night, but uh, a lovely lad. It's how you style them out, isn't it? And um, your last position then, number seven. Yeah, and uh, anybody who knows me will know who this is going to be, and it's James Greaves. Um, I did four seasons with James there, two at Newcastle, and followed him down to Redcar and did two seasons for him down there. Uh, had a great time, had some 
great laughs for them down there. Um, his first year at Newcastle, um, Stuart Dixon, who's uh, the current co-promoter at Leicester and team manager, uh, when James said, oh, I'm going to Newcastle, Stuart Dixon said, I don't know why you're going there. You can't overtake on that track. You know, it's impossible to. But um, James was just phenomenal. If he did miss the gate, he would, you know, he would pass anybody around the outside, up the inside. Some of his outside passes is, is just was just phenomenal. Um, and a great lad to work with. And it happened by, well, it wasn't by mistake, but it was a, a chance uh, meeting in the bar on press day after the, uh, after it finished um, because James uh, and Jesper Olsen who I'd previously mechanic for so like even though we're the team partners up at Glasgow whenever they'd race against each other at Newcastle something would happen and uh, either Jesper would come off or James would come off so they, they never really got on well and uh, with me being with Jesper I sort of like thought James was a bit of a, a dodgy character to say to say the least. But um uh, I remember one meeting when uh, James and uh, Jesper tangled and uh, James is storming back to the pits phone across the centre green and I'm pushing the bike back and I'm thinking, What's all the cheering for? And I, I looked over and coming down from the pits gate was Jesper's wife, Carol Olson, and you don't pick on Carol, and I'm thinking, yes, but don't pick on her. She'll she'll knock you out. <laughs> the biggest cheer of the night was Carol Olsen chasing James Reeves across the centre green. It was great days. Son as um, uh, visions of uh, a scene from Last of the Summer Wine, almost. Oh, certainly, certainly. <laughs> yeah. But getting back to that first season of James Hallett Newcastle, he scored eleven home maximums that year. Wow, he was that phenomenal. Yeah. There was one race uh, against Newport, and it's by far my favourite race of all time. Um, he was partnered with Trevor Harden, and I think he was up against Mads Corneliuson and Tony Atkin. And James was off gate two, and he totally missed the gate. He was stone last. By by the third lap, he was in the lead, but he did it all the hard way. He went round two riders around the third and fourth bend, round the outside of them. Trevor Harden was going round the outside of Tony Atkin and James went around the outside of Trevor Harden. Uh, you know, just a phenomenal piece of uh, like class, absolute genius on a speedway bike. And if people haven't seen that race, so share it on our social media as well. So have a look on uh, Facebook or Twitter uh, at Speedway Humans on Twitter and just search for Humans and Speedway on Facebook and um, you'll be able to see that race that. Uh, that Roy is talking about there. There's also a funny story about James that um, whenever he used to go to Sheffield, because Sheffield's a big, fast track, like a big, big oval, Yeah. he would never do very well. And uh, he went with Redcar one, one year, I think it was the first year he was there, and Gary Havelock was injured at the time, and Chris Van Stratton, who's uh, involved with Redcar, but it's more known for his uh, Wolverhampton promotion, mm-hmm. Um, they were at Sheffield and Javi and CVS were talking and CVS is going oh, if we'll get hammered today James hates this place and Javi goes he'll score double figures today CVS is going no way no way so they had a little little flutter between them so Gary Havelock did the track walk with James and came back in and 
I think he got third in his first one, but he won his next two. He won a tactical race and got six points and ended up with something like 14 points. And somebody, I looked at the, the Speedway updates yesterday regarding this, and somebody put on the updates there saying, James Greaves has scored more points in this meeting than what he has been in all his previous uh, appearances put together. But uh, it, was, it was just hilarious. It was He couldn't do a thing wrong. He was partnered with German Robbie Kessler, who was the next Sheffield Raider. And... Uh, Brian Havelock says to James, follow Robbie around. He'll pull you around. He'll show you how to go. And come in, and James had won the race. Robbie Kessler was second. And Robbie Kessler comes back in and goes to Brian Havelock. Excuse me, I'm having difficulty following him around. He's just too fast around here for me. <laughs> it's amazing what you can do when somebody tells you you can't do it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so great team there then, Roy, um, and, and all riders that you've you've spanned for. Um who would be the who would be the referee for your meeting? Well, sexiest referee in speedway, Willie Dishington, <laughs> or from Paisley, Scotland, or Graham Flint. Um, both cracking blokes. There's a lot of good referees. Peter Clark, who I call our kid, obviously, because we share the same same uh, surname. But uh, and loads of loads of really good referees. I even get on well with uh, Jim McGregor. You know, Jim McGregor's a, a, a cracking bloke. Even though he pulled us into the box one day and told us off, but uh, no, Willie Dishington for being the sexiest man. Graham Flint, by far the funniest referee. Uh, I can remember one night at Berwick where him and uh, Steve Hayward, the announcer up there at the time, were laughing so much they couldn't put the two-minute like buzzer on because I could just see them. I and mean, Flint is under the counter, and Steve here was just. You know, he's, he's, he's follically challenged, and all I can see is his bright red head in, in the box. And I'm going, What on earth are they playing that up there? <laughs> well, the mind boggles. Um, on the subject then of uh, officialdom in Speedway, if you're going to change one rule, Roy, what would it be? Well, I was going to ask you if you could change slightly change the way you said that and put the put the word book into that. Which one <laughs> rule book would you change? Um, yes, well. <laughs> For me, put me centre green head on. I think riders should be allowed to roll at the start, move at the start. Because if somebody gets a flyer, that's something else for me to play on, something to get the crowd going with. Or if somebody's constantly rolling at the start, you know, I can I can work on that and get the crowd going. You know, Ivan Major used to make an art of that. And everybody, if he, if he were a way fan, he hated you. They hated him, but mm. he, for the home fans, they loved him because you knew he was psyching the other riders out and that. And uh, but yeah, I would I would change that. And finally, then a team from any time in history, a complete team to take yours on. Who would it be? Nineteen seventy-six Newcastle Diamonds, who won the League Cup and the Fours that year. Phenomenal team. And would uh, that be the one with uh, with Ivan in it? No, no, Ivan no. had moved on there in 1976. Um, it was the second year after Ian Thomas and Brian Lana reopened Newcastle after the, they'd been closed for five years. Um, he put together a team in 75, which was basically, it more or less resembled one heat leader, three unknown Aussies and three second strings. And uh, it became a phenomenal team. Um 76, the team changed slightly halfway through, which I'll come on to 
during this, but uh, the seven riders I'm going to name all rode for Newcastle in that year. And, uh, you know, historical names, you know, number one, Tom Owen. You know, ten and a half point average that year. Number two, a bit of a unsung hero, but was loved by the fans at Newcastle. That's Phil Michaelides. Only did three years in this country, but a uh, great little rider. Number three, Joe Owen, who had a like eleven eleven point five average that year. I think he got he only dropped three points the whole season at Newcastle. Uh, Rod Henderson. A young Aussie lad. I think he was only nineteen at the time when he when he retired. You know, yeah. massive loss to the sport. You know, went on to become a social worker and a paramedic, and uh, uh, now is uh, very much involved with the church in Australia. Mm. Now, um, he he could have went gone on to be a a, a world star. He was that good. Um, five, which are Newcastle fans, might shout at the. It's uh, the computer listening to this when I name this rider Brian Havelock. <laughs> Brian uh, started off captain as Newcastle that that year, but left halfway through to go to Workington and became Workington number number one that that year. But uh, did a cracking job at Newcastle. Won the pairs with Tom Owen the previous year, but uh, could never get away with the Newcastle track, so that's why he left. Six is the man who actually replaced him at New at Newcastle, a young man called Andy Cusworth, who was uh, riding for Halifax in the top league and uh, sort of like doubled up. It was, you know, doubling up was even that, that early on, 1976. Um, he was from Dewsbury. He'd rode at Newcastle previously for Stoke and always did, done very well, but uh, he came to Newcastle. And number seven, another man who became a real legend at Newcastle, Robbie, Robbie Blackadder. Wow, that's a name and a half. I know. In in the <laughs> early days, he was uh, renowned for his crashes. Actually, left lost part of his finger on the track at Newcastle. Uh, what the first season, I think it was. Um, and Robbie Best, the, the the lad who was working on the track back then and still does now at Newcastle, actually found the part of his finger, so took it back to the pits, but they could never reattach it. Oh, but dear. Uh, he, Robbie Black and I, you know. Uh, after a few years in this country, became a real number one and a, a top top rider for Newcastle. But, uh, but ph- phenomenal team back then, and me being a young lad then, you know, really sticks in my mind. Well, it sounds like all the ingredients for uh, for the perfect meeting, Roy. Uh, thanks for sharing that with us, and and thanks for telling us your story as well and some some of your um, experiences too. It's been it's been great. Thanks very much, Ian, for, for inviting us on to the podcast. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, um, you know, to everybody out there, just talk to us, uh, talk to people, talk to anybody. Get yourself down to the speedway when it does restart, because I tell you what, we love it, don't we? We do. And uh, we hope to see you back on the centre green behind the mic again very, very soon. I hope so. Thanks very much. My pleasure to speak to Roy Clark and hopefully we'll see him back on the centre green at Redcar or Newcastle or Berwick or somewhere else in the UK. Who knows where he'll uh, pop up next, but a fascinating story. And if you're a new subscriber to Humans of Speedway, first of all, welcome along. Thanks for listening and uh, hope you enjoyed it. There are eight other episodes that you can check out right now, including chats with Speedway Grand Prix race director Phil Morris. We've got Shane Parker uh, going inside the referee's box with 
with Chris Derno and seven-time British champion Scott Nichols and TV commentator Nigel Pearson. Just a few that you can check out right now wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, if you did enjoy listening, it'd be great for you to drop us a review and a rating wherever you listen to your podcast. That's always nice. And plus, you can catch us on social media. We are at Speedway Humans on Twitter and Humans of Speedway on Facebook. We'll always share a few little bonus clips there of upcoming episodes. You can find out all the latest news before it happens quite often on those particular feeds. But until next time, stay safe and we'll speak soon on Humans of Speedway. Sports Social Podcast Network.